This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome listeners. Today I'm speaking with Greg Poole, Chief of Section for the Middle East and North Africa with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA in New York. Greg, let's start with what you're currently working on today. So I just started a new uh, job as the Section Chief for the Middle East and North Africa here. That's uh, just a few weeks old. Uh, I spent most of the last few months in Beirut working on the Syria crisis, hoping to do that from Syria, but that proved not to be possible. So um, what we do here is support our colleagues who are working in the Middle East and North Africa region in OCHA with everything they need to, you know, in terms of services and, and support from the headquarters. But then we also have a huge job in engaging with the international diplomatic and political machine here in New York, most particularly the Security Council on the Middle East issues. Um, you know, and unfortunately, particularly in the last 10 years, the Middle East has become much more prominent on the Security Council's agenda. So we've been very busy on Syria um, and Iraq, and we will be on, uh, on Yemen and on Libya and other issues. So we're trying to make sure that the Security Council has the full information and analysis that it needs and an honest a clear-eyed picture of the humanitarian consequences of its uh, decisions. Where else have you worked? Uh, I started, well, I, w- I haven't worked my whole career in the purely humanitarian field, you know. Initially, I was a little skeptical about humanitarianism. I felt it was a kind of conservative, you know, it wasn't really aimed at the, uh, at the structural changes that I thought I really wanted to focus on. But you know, once you start to see it in action, you see how necessary it is. At least for me, I, I, I became a lot more attached to it. Um, but anyway, I started working in Central America mm-hmm. uh, for a foundation in Costa Rica that was working in the kind of post-conflict context in, in the region. I did that for, for a long time. Then I, uh, I was at headquarters for a while, and then I worked in um, Ethiopia. I did a series of short-term assignments in different places, um, in Gaza and in Zimbabwe. And in, I worked on some uh, kind of protection-oriented stuff in Africa for the government of Canada um, and for an NGO consortium. Then I was a country director um, in, in Russia, in the Russian Federation, and in, and in Ethiopia, as I mentioned. And uh, following that, I came back to the headquarters, and then I went to Myanmar. Myanmar. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was tough. It's it's very difficult. I mean, what, what's it like as a place? It's a fantastic place. You know, it's a beautiful place, and it's a very interesting country, you know, in a very interesting moment politically. Um, but it was also uh, very difficult to see what people there were going through. Um, you know, some of the most marginalized and uh, almost dehumanized people. Um, 
particularly in Rakhine, I'm, I'm speaking of the range of people there. Uh, that was very difficult. It was very difficult to go through, uh, to, to see the struggle of the United Nations system and the international community to really fully respond to the, to the scale of what was happening there. So that's very difficult. It's very difficult as a humanitarian where you, where you see on the one hand just the awful things that people are living through, and on the other hand, all the imperfections of the way that we, um, all the complexities and imperfections in the way that we respond to them. And sometimes the distance between those two things is painful. Um, and so I felt that kind of pain there, for sure. So how would you define a humanitarian crisis? Well, I guess it's when people are suffering on a large scale, you know, due to uh, a conflict or a natural disaster. Now, yeah, I guess that's a quite kind of bureaucratic answer. People suffer on large scales due to lots of things. But uh, I think what makes humanitarian crisis distinct is that there's a kind of, there's, a, there's an unusual external, you know, shock. And it just turns a large number of people's lives upside down. Right. And if that shock is caused by poverty, would you still consider that a humanitarian crisis? Well, I consider poverty to be a crisis, <laughs> but uh, I think there's something valuable about guarding a, a bit of a different category um, for, um, you know, kind of large-scale incidents that cause a lot of suffering, because the way that you respond to them has to be different. I mean, you can't solve poverty. Poverty in, you know, using the tools that are helpful to us in, in an earthquake or the tools that are helpful to us when people have to flee their homes in a war. Of course, these things are related. Um, but, um, you know, and, and there are uh, uh, some humanitarian organizations, you know, one of which I came from, that uh, tries to do both of those things. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not of the school that thinks there's like a blissfully isolated sphere of humanitarian action and it's not related to poverty. No, I don't think that. I do think uh, uh, there's some value in having a, this category still, you know, because the tools that we use to help people, you know, in a kind of defined crisis like that are different from the tools to overcome poverty. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that your mind would distinguish? So say you have a crisis, no, you have high mortality rates um, due to lack of development in an area. Yeah. Is that a situation where humanitarian aid should be provided? Um, no. I mean, it, that, that's a really hard no to give, <laughs> isn't it? Because like, if someone doesn't have uh, shelter, should they have, should, should, should they have a tent? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, on one level, yes, of course, they should have a tent. But should the global response to them be provide them, them with a tent? Or should it be a much more comprehensive thing about you know, empowering them to, to, to change their circumstances? And I, I, you know, I think it should be the latter, addressing the structural issues. That should be, that should be the, uh, you know, that's what the crisis demands. That's what the a crisis of like, you know, that kind of entrenched poverty demands. Mm -hmm. But if we respond to it only with humanitarian tools, um, you know, buckets of water and tents and, and uh, um, you know, chlorine tabs and, the, the, you know, uh, uh, cooking supplies, etc. I mean, we're not, you're not doing anything about the 
underlying or structural causes. So, uh, you know, for me, the, the response to poverty has to be looking at injustice and the, structure and, you know, the structures that created it. What do you see as the top two, three UK humanitarian challenges today, globally? Well, um, I think in conflict, just the flagrant targeting of civilians, the complete disrespect for the laws and rules of war that, you know, while not having any illusion that there was ever a golden period where they were, you know, perfectly respected and there was accountability, etc. Um, I do think that, you know, certainly in the second half of the last century, there was pretty significant effort to build global norms and institutions around protected people in conflict, mm -hmm. mostly um, best put together in the Geneva Conventions. And that particularly in the last you know few decades, we've just seen unbelievable level of flouting of that, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, a willful um, disregard for the difference between the civilian and a, and a, and a combatant. And, you know, for me, that's the biggest humanitarian challenge in the world right now. Um, you know, climate change, you know, climate change with what is inevitably, I fear, now going to be a very large increase in the number of natural disasters, what we call natural disasters. You know, I'm thinking of droughts, severe storms in particular. And when you combine that with the large-scale movement of people that climate change is and will continue to produce urbanization, you know, people really live, living on the margins uh, with very little resilience and then all these external shocks, you know, that will come at a larger scale and more frequently uh, because of what we've done to the climate. For me, that's the other biggie. Right. And, uh, you know, for me, that also just shows what... Uh, I, f I felt like the interlinked approach between, you know, the deep structural changes and the kind of uh, humanitarian responses, you know, climate change requires both of those. We're going to need humanitarian responses to droughts and hurricanes, but, um, you know, really to address it, we need, uh, you know, we need wholesale changes to the economy, and that's not something humanitarians can provide. Now, as you know, I believe in the power of storytelling to teach, to drive change, and in the context of humanitarian action to raise awareness. What novels have you read about a humanitarian crisis? I read a lot of world of great war fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, these are European stories about the great war. I'm still really interested in that. By the way, I still read nonfiction about that. So, um, yeah, I remember reading some kind of first world war novels. They're not specifically about humanitarian action, but that war was so awful, you know, and its impacts on people was so, so brutal went on for so long, so 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 huge in its scale. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I remember a book called Johnny Got His Gun, about a injured soldier who comes back to the United States. I remember a book called Goodbye to All That, about a British uh, soldier. There's the German one, All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. So those books had a big impact on me. Those novels, mm -hmm. those war novels, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, Ernest Hemingway's novel about uh, the Spanish Civil War uh, called For Whom the Bell Tolls, that had a big uh, impact on me also. I still love that book. So, 
Yeah, those. Oh, and Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was about the Second World War, but uh, I love that because it just so it because the book is so absurd. Like you know, it 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 showed the kind of absurdness of of the whole thing and the insanity of what it does to to people. Um, I I understand I understand it a little bit better now. Having I'm certainly not an old war hand, you know, but I understand it better now having been involved in the kind of logic of, of some conflicts. Um, you know, at the time when I read them, it was all kind of quite foreign to me, but I was, I was very taken by what, what I, I guess you would call some of the kind of humanitarian content in there, the way that people suffered in those, in those wars. So, yeah, and, so novels. Right. Yeah. And so if you had to pick one to sort of talk about for the next question, which one would it be, Catch-22? Uh, yeah, sure, yeah. sure, yeah. And when, when we look at, you know, critiquing literature, fiction, really, yeah. we're looking at plot, yeah. we're looking at setting, place, we're looking at characters, we're looking at, you know, scenery and, and description. So if you sort of keep that in mind, um, what aspects of that book um, did you find useful about it, if you think like from, from a humanitarian point of view? Did it teach you anything? Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it did. Uh, I choose, okay, well, one thing is uh, the psychology of, the, these, are, these are mostly men in this, and, and, they're, and they're combat, they're soldiers. So it's not a humanitarian story in the sense that it's about the impact of the war on civilians, although that's, that, that is part of it, it's certainly mm-hmm. in it. But the, things that stayed, the thing that stayed with me the most was the kind of psychology of, what the war did to the soldiers mm-hmm. and how it made them want to escape the war. And, you know, the, the point of Catch-22 is that uh, Yossarian, who's the main character of it, he, uh, he, he wants out of the army because he knows he's going to die and he's, and, and, and he's seen his friends die. And there's one very, very moving uh, part about uh, his uh, comrade called Snowden who dies but he he has to um, he has to prove that he's insane to get out of the, the army but if you want out of the army I mean if you're in the army and you know you're gonna die the only sane thing is to want out so the fact that <laughs> the fact that he's asking out shows that he is sane and that's what the catch-22 is Um, but for me I don't know for me it was just about the you know the psychology that a conflict the insanity that a conflict imposes on everybody that it touches you know in a serious way because you know all all conflicts are insane in the sense that they're you know what they ask of people is so wildly disproportional to what they're aim what you know what, what they end up achieving you know their costs are so much higher than their than than their achievements normally and and uh but people get caught up in them and and, and they're impossible to escape you know for civilians and for the combatants so if, if for me that kind of showed me that in a way that only a story really can you know you could read us you could read a psychology textbook about it but uh, you know the fact that it's you know it's art um, 
it just reveals more about it, you know, or it reveals it in a different way. So what wakes you up every day and keeps you going in this in this job? Well, first of all, um, working with amazing people, you know, like yourself, Ruth. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, we really have great, great colleagues from all over the world. I mean, I think we need it's easy to forget how what an amazing privilege it is to work with them, you know, just like, you know, you mentioned Myanmar. We were talking about we were together in Myanmar for a while. I mean, you know, the, the colleagues that are from there that, uh, you know, for them, it's not the field. Uh, it's just their home um, and that are so talented and, and committed. And uh, it's a real it's an inspiration to work with, with those people, for sure. And some of them just, you know, amazing heroes. I think about Syria. Mm -hmm. Th think about the national, the, you know, the Syrian people who have risked their lives. And so many of them lost their lives trying to help other Syrian people through this nightmare. Um, so that's, you know, that's inspiring. It, it, it really is. So, you know, that's that's fuel, you know, to, to, to try to propel you through what feels like, you know, difficult thing for someone like me. And then, I, yeah, I try to uh, hold on to a few small moments, you know, that I can think of, of just a person I met in a difficult situation. And just think about, well, you know, what I'm going through is really you know, trivial right. compared to that. Mm -hmm. um, like, I remember this kid I met in Gaza who had lost his whole family, like in, a, in, a, in an attack, rocket attack there. And he was sitting in a room in a wheelchair. And he had all the pictures of the, all of his... Uh, uh, family all up around him in the room, like 10 or 12 of them, you know, and he was sitting there alone in this wheelchair room. So, you know, if I, if I ever get on a little like, oh, woe is me, this is so tough for me, you know, I try to think about that guy. How old was this kid? Oh, he was, I say kid, I, he was, I don't know, he was maybe his late teens, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, just try to think about Things feel tough for me, but they're actually not tough. I mean, I've actually got a great life doing this work, you know, which is a re weird paradox. What is the one action, do you think, that can be taken or that we can advocate for that could make a fundamental difference? For, pe for, for just people. regular people? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, I th for me, the most important thing regular people can do is, number one, Look at your own behavior. If we're talking about climate change, look at your own behaviors and the way you act and spend your money and vote. But then, uh, number two, find an organization that shares the values that you have and uh, join it. And, you know, work with other people to, uh, towards solving these problems. And, and, and not just for climate change, but also for the issue, issues around protecting people in conflict, you know. I don't want to sound a note of total despair around that because it actually is possible to um, to make changes in the way that wars are conducted. We know that because it has been done, you know, in the past, not perfectly, as I said, but you know, um, when more people are engaged and mobilized and and, and paying attention and, and caring about it, it can it can make a difference. And. What is your greatest hope for the people affected by humanitarian crisis? My hope is that those who are trying to help them 
and we who are trying to lead and coordinate those who are trying to help them can be good enough for them, you know, can, can live up to what they, what they deserve. Because in my worst moments in this job, I've just felt like, oh my God, this isn't good enough. You know, this, isn't re this is really not good enough. So my hope would be to overcome that feeling and feel like, yeah, it's good enough. Right. You know, if their situation is still terrible, it's not fair, but what we're doing is good enough. I would like to feel that. Wow, that's a great place to end our conversation. Greg, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your stories. To the listeners, thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift, and the editor, Cyrus Jones. Music by the Nomadic Band. Goodbye.